0: Good morning, I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And today we're going to be continuing our series on uh, the book of Mark called The Big Reveal. So one of the uh, big heroes from the movement, Plymouth Brethren, was uh, George Mueller. And he was in full-time ministry from early on. And eventually, after pastoring several churches, God laid it on Mueller's heart to address the need of the many homeless orphans that were in the streets after a large cholera outbreak. And in his lifetime, he uh, served 10,024 orphans That's some kind of a a ministry there. They were the benefactors of his ministry. Well, when he started those children's homes, and he had pastored two churches before then, um, his primary objective may surprise you. It was not the welfare of the children. His main concern was that it should be known that God was providing all the needs. Um, in response to prayer and faith without anyone ever being asked for money or approached for money. So God did provide, too. He honored that. Um, Mueller ended up renting, at the beginning, a large building to provide a home for the street children, and he continued all his life to rely on God for provision. And there's a story that's told by one of the orphan girls that were present at the time It was a day when all the children were led into the dining room for breakfast, um, but there was no food in the house. So nevertheless, Mueller sat the children at the tables, fully confident that God would provide. And they gave thanks for the food that wasn't there. And as they finished, there was a knock at the door. This really happened. I'm not making it up. A neighborhood baker stood there, and he told Mueller that he had, the Lord had awakened him during the night and told him to get up and bake bread for the orphans. And as he left, giving his huge basket of bread, the milkman appeared at the door. And the milkman, um, a wheel, had fallen off of his cart right outside the entrance to the orphanage. And he needed help that he could amend it. Um, but he knew that if he left the cart unattended to go get the help, that milk would all be stolen. So rather than that happen, he told Mueller, I I would like to donate the milk uh, to the orphanage. So the children had their breakfast, Um, milk and and, uh, bread. But, you know, I think that their nourishment was more than physical that day. I think that they learned a very important truth about the faithfulness of God. So do you read stories like that and start feeling guilty right away? Uh, Because in reality, even though you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you still struggle to trust him on that kind of a level in your everyday life. So today, we're going to hear a story of a man who very keenly felt his lack of faith. Ambiguousness. I trust you, but I don't. Kind of an idea. And he meets Jesus for the first time as Jesus and Peter and um, James and John were coming down off of the mountain after the transfiguration And so there is where this story takes place. So we can take a look at Mark 9. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out. And they could not do it. And Jesus answered and said to them, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood, it's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I I do believe. Help my unbelief. (laughs) When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So let's pray blessing on God's word and we'll get going. Lord, I thank you so much for this passage of scripture. Um, It's a hard one, It's a hard one to think that an amount of our faith would make a difference in anything, and um, we just ask God that you would please guide us as we walk through this passage and talk about some of the aspects of it, and that you would make your message very, very clear, and that you would get me out of the way and let your word do the talking. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what I'd like to do this morning, something a little bit different, I want to take a look at this story from two perspectives. The first perspective I want to see the story through is the eyes of the father. The second perspective, and I'm kind of almost scared to say it out loud, but through the eyes of Jesus, (laughs) because I asked him. But anyway, there was a man, a father, this was a man who loved his son. He was desperate to rid him of that frightening demonic possession, that presence that had ruined not only his son's life, but the whole family's life. And he knew that the demon could very well kill him. So when he heard about Jesus and his ability to cast out evil spirits, he couldn't get there fast enough. But when he arrived, Jesus and three of his disciples were nowhere in sight. Now, some of his other disciples were, and so they were waiting for his return. Now, you have to know something about the culture there. In the first century, a disciple was viewed that the messenger of a man was as if, the man himself. That's a direct quote. And so it was it a was kind of thing where the messengers were just considered just as worthy of the message and just as powerful to give it. So it probably didn't seem like so much of a stretch when the disciples offered to do the exorcism for the boy. But they failed. And of course the scribes jumped on it. Um, they had earlier assumed, if you remember, back when Jesus healed the paralytic, that, uh, that Jesus' power was not from God, but from Satan himself. And so his disciples' failure to work against Satan went in their favor, just proved their point from earlier, and so they begin to argue. Now, think about, to the father, what that exorcism, the failed exorcism, would have meant. He began to wonder, I'm sure, was Jesus as good as everybody said he was? And he began to lose hope that maybe his son would ever be delivered. But then, Jesus arrives. And after asking what they're arguing about, he tells the crowd, Bring him to me. So the father comes to the head of the crowd and and explains the situation. And Jesus' reaction to his explanation kind of startles him. Because he watches Jesus turn to the crowd and say, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long? How long? should I put up with you. Now those words had a very familiar ring. It harkens back to the Israelites in the wilderness when God is lamenting um, the unbelief of the Israelites. He said this, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? And later in Deuteronomy, Moses says, They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. So when Jesus said those words to the crowd, to the scribes who knew the Bible like the back of their hand, you betcha they remembered those words of that, that unbelieving generation. And then Jesus asked for the boy, to, to, to for the boy to be brought to him. And when he does, the demons for the first time get a look at Jesus, and they throw him, cry out, and throw him into a terrible convulsion. Then Jesus asked the father how long has this been happening? Now, I wondered about that little sentence because I thought, well, what, what, who cares? The fact is he's demon-possessed right now and you need to get rid of that demon. But I imagine the father even was a little surprised at that question because rather than just put his hand on him and heal him like he could have done, instead he stops and he deals with the father. You know, I want to just kind of put in front of you that there were two victims of this demon. In that, in that crowd. One was the son, yes, but the other was the father. And he'd been in agony over his son, watching this demon systematically destroy him. And as a, if you're a parent, you understand that angst that comes with that. But so what does Jesus do? He starts to deal with the father. Why? He's making it a priority to listen to him. And the father answers from childhood. And then he adds that that demon is trying to destroy his son. But even while he sees the compassion in Jesus' eyes, in his heart of hearts, he's wondering a little bit if Jesus can really do this thing. And that's reflected in his next sentence. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. But Jesus wants more from him. If he asks, all things are possible to him who believed. Now, the man wanted to believe. He had just seen Jesus criticize the scribes and surrounding crowd for their unbelief. So anything less than pure confidence in Jesus after that could make him really angry again. And in some way, he still clung to this hope that Jesus could do it. So he throws himself on the mercy of the rabbi, and he says, I do believe, and then honestly answers, help my unbelief. All right, now I want to go backwards to the beginning of this this account, and let's look at it from Jesus' perspective. Now, he's just come down off the mountain after a beautiful, wonderful time of fellowship with two prophets, uh, Elijah and Moses, who had come before him. And up on that mountain, God had affirmed his sonship to the inner circle of disciples with an audible voice. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. They were awed. And they came down the mountain, different men than they were before. But now, as they're approaching this crowd, Jesus can see the disciples in a heated interchange with the scribes. And he could guess what this was about. Because the scribes had earlier accused Jesus as being possessed by Beelzebul, saying he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And he has an unclean spirit. And I wonder if at that moment, as he approached the crowd, if he felt a little bit like Moses. Moses, who came down off the mountain to get hit in the face with the unbelief of the people, and now here was happening the same to him. The crowd surges up to him, eager to see what Jesus would do. One of the men in the crowd tells him about the boy, and Jesus feels great compassion. Of course he does, for both the son and his agonized father. And quite possibly, he feels a righteous anger at the destructive work of Satan. Now, there's no faith in the crowd. They don't see God in his person, his teachings, his miracles. Don't see him. So such a contrast to that recent affirming, discernible presence of the Father up on that mountain. And so he scolds them. Oh, believing generation, how long should I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Their refusal to believe was really hard to take, especially in light of what he had just experienced up on that mountain. But Jesus shakes it off, and he puts his total attention on that poor father and his son. Um, After calling them forward, the demon in the son immediately throws him to the ground, puts him into an uh, epileptic-like convulsion. Sorry. It was horrific. But before he heals the son, he takes the time to talk to the father, gives him a chance to express that agony, and show him love by listening to him. The father describes the horror of it all, and that the fact that, His son could well be destroyed. And I imagine Jesus listening intently and nodding his head as he heard what the father had to say. Then Jesus asks, how long has this been happening? The father tells him, makes his request, tells him the reason he's come to this place and expressing the hope which he had come. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, Jesus knows that the father must have believed he could do it before he ever came. But he also knows the father has just witnessed a concerning argument with the scribes casting doubt on the source of his power. And the man is obviously struggling. But Jesus knows if he could know him, know him a little better, there would be no doubt. He doesn't want that man to walk away from the miracle with any lingering false impressions. So he asks a very clarifying question, as rabbis often did. If you can, what does the man really think of him? Then he assures him, all things are possible for him who believes. The father answers, I do believe. Help my unbelief. He's doing the best he can. And Jesus knows it. And I think he has compassion for that too. Getting something from your head to your heart can often be a very big challenge. So he heals the boy with a single command. You deaf and mute spirit, come out of him! and specifically, most likely in clarification for the father's sake, that he forbids the demon to ever enter him again. Now, the demon is helpless. He only can obey the voice of God. Now, he may have made the boy deaf and mute, but the demon is not, and he cries out as he hears the command. And as he leaves, he gives the last shot at destruction. The boy is thrown into a terrible convulsion so bad that after the demon's gone it looks like the trauma has actually killed him but Jesus is undaunted he has power even over death he takes the boy by the hand raises him now completely healed now finally let's think about this from where the disciples were in this whole thing they had been qualified over demons and had did plenty of of them themselves when Jesus sent them out to preach the kingdom of God if you remember in the surrounding area and I'm sure they were wondering why couldn't they do it now, and we're going to get to that answer in just a minute. So we've heard the story three times now. So we have to ask: So what? How should this story affect me in the here and now? Well, I have heard this story applied on many occasions, but the one that really sticks out in my mind was when a husband of a good friend of mine sent an email to me and a whole bunch of people. Um, his his stepdaughter, who was married and had small children, she was in her 30s, had just been diagnosed with a very serious brain cancer, a tumor, that was inoperable. And she was going, and they, they told them, just out plain, she's got about a year to live. Well, of course, horrifying news. And so the stepdad went into like a military-like offensive mode. So in that group email, he assured his family and friends, he was choosing to believe that God would miraculously heal her. He stated it with absolute conviction and even had Bible verses to back him up. If we believed hard enough, he reasoned, that God would reward us by sparing her life. We just needed enough faith. Well, a year later, they sadly held the funeral for this sweet girl. I knew her, I loved her. It was a devastating time. And I've often wondered that that. The fact that God didn't respond to him as he tried so hard to have solid faith in, in uh, what God might do, that maybe God had actually broken his promise. But I think that our narrative today is giving us a very different message. Matthew provides an important detail that Mark leaves out for us to be able to figure out what this is happening here in this passage. Because when the disciples get back to the house and they later question Jesus um, and, and why they couldn't oust that demon on their own, Jesus tells them, because of the littleness of your faith. Now, before you get too excited, that's a bad translation. And I'll tell you why. The Greek word for faith is pistis. And the word Jesus used was apistia. That same root, but with an A in front of the word, which makes it the direct opposite of the root word. So we see it in English words like symmetrical and asymmetrical, or typical and atypical. One is, and the other is not. So what Jesus literally said, according to Matthew in the Greek, was that the disciples had the opposite of faith. They had no faith at all. So I think a better translation of that would be because of your unbelief now and jesus went on to say truly i say to you if you have faith the size of a mustard seed that's a seed that's so small it'd be like a little dot on your finger you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move nothing will be impossible for you so the size of their faith obviously was not the thing it wasn't the issue in trying to move a mountain, or in this case, cast out a demon. It was whether they had implied faith at all. Well, didn't the disciples have faith? I mean, just a chapter or so ago, we read about Peter's declaration that he believed Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God, and nobody objected to that. They all were in agreement. So, and didn't they leave everything to follow him? I mean, where is, there, is there faith there? And I'd say, yes, absolutely, they had faith. But I think at that moment that Jesus was specifically talking about their failed attempt to out that demon because that's what they had asked him about. That what they did and how they did it was not an act of faith in anything but themselves. He tells them, this kind only comes out by prayer. In other words, they hadn't even prayed and asked God for his power and rescue for this boy. Jesus said, you will not be able to do this kind of miracle in your own strength. And they would need to know that um, and to involve God and work in His powers and a lesson so important to learn, because later he would tell them this: "Apart from me, you can do nothing. But for now, he's giving them a little taste where they should head. This kind, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. It's not the size of our faith that matters. A popular radio uh, radio preacher, David Jeremiah, love him, who's a huge ice fishing fan, he tells about a question that he used to survey people in his congregation. And he asked them this, gave of a choice. Would you, mm, one, rather have a lot of faith about stepping out into a half inch of ice, or would you rather have a small amount of faith and step out onto two feet thick ice. Now, you might wonder what you would have said, but you might be surprised, but half of the people chose the first one. A lot of faith and a little bit of ice. And he said that he marked off as he asked these people, um, make a note, never go ice fishing with that guy. (laughs) (laughs) You see, if we think it's up to us and how strongly we believe something, then we would actually be actually trusting in our faith. But in reality, it's not the largeness of our faith that matters. It's the largeness of the object of our faith. About 60 years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. It was a big deal when I was a kid growing up. And he gives lots of ways in how short-sighted that we can be in our understanding of God. Um, he gives a lot of examples of those. I'll just throw out a few. That God is like a conscience sitting on your shoulder, like a policeman telling you the good and the bad and what you should do and stay away from wrong. Or there's this parental garbage, or not garbage, but baggage God, when an understanding of him is formed by what kind of parents you had. The um, then there's the old gentleman with the white beard, the kindly grandfather type God. Another one is a God of per, uh, perennial grievance a God who disappoints. They've decided what they think God ought to or ought not to do, and when he fails that particular, to toe their particular line, they are disillusioned. Now, all of these, and there are plenty more, are not how God reveals himself to be in Scripture, not even close to what he really is. The better we realistically understand the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the greater our ability will be to trust him. In other words, the greater the object of your faith, the stronger your faith will be. And I think that's why Jesus insisted that the father in today's story acknowledge his ability to, draw, to drive out the demon. Understanding the greatness of the person who stood before him would go a long way to helping him understand that he was the son of God and it would increase his faltering faith. So the father learned a whole lot that day He experienced his compassion and saw his power, and he saw Jesus take his traumatized son by the hand and raise him to life and strength completely free from any demonic threat in the future. I'm willing to bet he walked away with the ability to say, I trust in your power and your mercy. I have faith in you. Now, the disciples learned something, too, that the act of prayer is really an act of faith. Because when we go to God in prayer, we're acknowledging we need help. And we can't do it on our own. And we're trusting that he is able to provide that help. That dependency on him is an expression of trust, faith. One day when Jesus was gone, those disciples were going to do miracles to validate their preaching. But they would learn from this day to never operate in their own strength. They would cling to the Lord with desperation, understanding they were inadequate, but he is not. So you want to have more faith. We all do. It's, and, but the thing is, it's not a matter of willpower. We can't force ourselves to do that. What it is about is getting to know him better. So how do we do that? Well, the first is obvious. Read the Bible is written to reveal the word of God. Every story, every poem, every prophecy reveals something about him. And it's a bottomless supply. We'll never get it all, never. It's going to take an eternity to know him. But we can continue to add to our knowledge on a daily basis. So read his word, study it, and ask his help for understanding. And second, do. Take those words you read and you read, and put them into practice. I'm talking actual obedience to what he says. Because when we put ourselves out there, making the rubber meet the road, acting on his word as if it is true, God will prove himself faithful over and over again. And after experiencing his faithfulness, we will have a greater ability to trust him in the future. And I didn't make those steps up. I found them in Psalm 81. It says this, Open your mouth that I might fill it. Oh, that my people Israel would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And what's the result? A faith that will not be shaken. And with honey from the rock, I will satisfy you. So every spring, I buy myself a new pair of leather gardening gloves. I spare no expense. expense. They're like $8. But when you first put them on, they're very stiff and very clumsy, and they're hard to work with. And I've actually damaged several uh, small little plants that I'm trying to put into the ground with these stupid gloves. And, it, and it's so clumsy, I've actually broken plants with them. But as I use them, over and over time, they start to get supple. They become valuable. And then they, I can use them knowing that they're protecting my nails and the skin on my hands from all that roughage of soil and rock. The longer my gloves are used, the more useful they become a great metaphor for growing our faith we must take what you know about god and put it to use and when we do our ability to trust will inevitably grow and what will develop is a great faith a deep trust in a faithful god let's pray heavenly father we do thank you that you are faithful and that you even with a mustard seed understand our struggle with truly believing but I ask God that we would be faithful to go to your word and find out as much about you as possible so that the object of our faith is worth trusting as we know you are but worth trusting to us help us God to do that because we do want to be a people who operate in faith in trust for you So we just ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.